Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. you to go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I think we might finish up chapter 3 today, and you will quickly realize that uh, it is a genealogy, and this would, I admit, be the first time I've preached on a genealogy, and you're probably thinking, oh great, what's he going to do? We're really going to listen to a genealogy, but just to remind you that we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And so this includes things like genealogies, and uh, I pray that as we go through some of the, the, the things that Luke has written for us, that your hearts would be encouraged and reminded as we sing of God's faithfulness. So we will start reading at verse 23 of Luke 3, and if I butcher some of the names, um, just try not to laugh at me, okay? I, I did practice this, so I'm hoping that I get through them all. Definitely not uh, Hebrew, so... If you want to stand with me, please, we will start reading Luke 3, 23. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Mahath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai the son of Kosan, the son of Elamadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Milah, the son of Mena, the son of Mathat, uh, Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, Mehalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at 
your design. Lord, we marvel at your faithfulness from the beginning of time, Lord, even though the first man, our father Adam, turned his back on you, Lord. You did not forsake humanity, God. You determined that you would bring forth your son, Lord, that you would do it through the broken lines of humanity, God, that you would rescue us, that you would deliver us, and that you would restore us. Lord, we marvel at the faith of these many of these men and the women, Lord, who walked with them. And God, we pray that we would be pleased to be also in the great line of your redemption. God, we pray that you give us insight into your word, Lord, even as we look at these things, that hearts would be encouraged, that our sins would be exposed, Father. We pray that you would open our eyes in a fresh way to the great picture of history and your sovereign rule over it, Lord, and hope for the days to come as we look at uncertainties around us, Father, and, and pressure and, and looming persecution, Father, that we would take heart knowing that you are the God of the ages. You are the God who was, who is, and who is to come. And so I pray this in Jesus' name now. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're like me, when you come through in your uh, Bible reading times and you come to a genealogy, say you're going through the book of Numbers, a lot of times I'm guilty of uh, reading these as you kind of, you know, read the first name and uh, you get, okay, Joseph, son of Heli, and then you're just kind of like, son of Adam. And then that's kind of how we tend to read these, isn't it? And sometimes we'll uh, pick up a few names in there that we recognize, and we maybe will, in our minds, link a bit of a story to that name. You see some, you know, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Boaz. You might think of the, the story of uh, Boaz and, and uh, Ruth and that amazing account there in the scriptures. But generally, we tend to think of things like genealogy as basically just using up paper in our Bibles, not having any real value. Um, you may have noticed, I, I don't know if it's an increase, it seems like one to me in our day, that some people, there seems to be an increasing desire to know about people's heritage, to know about where we've come from, and uh, mostly for emotional, maybe sentimental re reasons in our day. And, uh, you know, I saw a one video where they had all these people gathered in a room from all different backgrounds, all different, different ethnicities, and what they did was they got a little testimony from the person you know, where they thought they were from and what they were proud of about their heritage, and then they did some genetic testing, and one by one they revealed to these people uh, what their actual lineage was. And it was incredible to see their response. Many of them broke down in tears, realizing that they actually weren't at all uh, historically who they thought, and some of them had cousins in the room that they didn't know. And, uh, and then, of course, they make this what they think is a remarkable statement that they think maybe we have a common ancestor. And I'm basically at that point yelling to the screen, read the book of Genesis. It's all there. Of course, we, we have a common ancestor, and his name is Adam. And so that might be the extent of our understanding of things like genealogies. Um, the, the, the group in our day that might take it the most serious would possibly be the Mormon uh, faith. And uh, for, for heretical reasons, they keep long lists of genealogies because they believe they can be baptized for the dead. And so we don't really have a counterpart to, to, the, to the Jewish mindset of the, the importance of these genealogies. And you have to remember that they, they meticulously recorded their lineage. Why? It wasn't just sentimental reasons. It wasn't just because, you know, they knew they were going to get a school project where you had to, you know, map out your family tree back three generations, uh, like some of you may have done. 
they knew that God's covenant promises would be established through generational lines was one of the reasons. They also, uh, depending on which family you were from, would also affect which land you were to inherit. I imagine if some of you knew that you might be entitled to, you know, a township of land or something, you, uh, but you had to prove your, your family lineage, you would probably be tracking it pretty carefully as well. Uh, who was your father and his father and his father? And that was another reason. But the greatest reason of all is that there was there was messianic promises given that through specific family lines, the Messiah would come. And so Matthew records the lineage of Christ and Luke records the lineage of Christ because in this day it was essential that if they were going to make a claim that Jesus was the Messiah, that they can validate his connection to David, to the patriarchs, and, uh, and so this is what's happening. They are proving to their audience, Matthew to a, a Jewish audience, which is why he only goes to, Matt, to Abraham. He doesn't keep going. Luke, writing to Gentiles and Jews, he goes all the way back to Adam. And so he, he's got a little different purpose than, than Matthew. So that's a little bit of the, the uh, context in which Matthew is writing. This, this is very, very important that they can validate the lineage of Christ. And so I pray this morning as we look at this that, that we can have a fresh uh, picture of God's faithfulness, of His, of his uh, power, His sovereignty over history, over all things, uh, because we see that so clearly displayed as we go back over thousands of years of lineage and see God's design in it. Uh, at the very start, you have a statement by Luke, just pointing out that Jesus started around 30 years old when he began his ministry. And it's interesting uh, as well because that would have been, the, the, as I understand, the average age of a priest entering into the priesthood. It was also about that age when David was crowned king. So I think there's some connections happening that, that here we have Christ uh, not only as priest, but also his, his, he's entering onto the throne. He's, he's going to be uh, established as the king after the line of David. Now, you might ask the question, why does Luke put this here? Why not at the beginning like Matthew does? Matthew opens his, his gospel with the lineage of Christ. Luke waits for a while until after he has uh, given us the account of, of John the Baptist and the birth narrative and I think it's, it's, it's a clear um, break in Luke's account that you remember it, we've talked about before how from the beginning Luke is paralleling John the Baptist with Jesus. You have the announcement to Zechariah, he will have a son, his name will be John, he will prepare the way. Then you have an announcement to Mary that she will have a son, his name will be Jesus, and he will be son of the Most High. And then you have the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, and then you have John's ministry. This now marks the, the transition from John to Jesus. And from this point on, Luke is going to spend the rest of his epistle telling us about the ministry and the work, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it marks a, a bit of a shift in the emphasis that Luke is making. It's, it's shifting from John as he fulfills his ministry and is focusing on Christ. And, uh, and so that's probably part of why he's, he's doing it here. Now, before we look at 
a few reasons why this genealogy gives us hope and, and reminds us of God's faithfulness. Um, if you run into any critics, someone who's trying to, to undermine the Scriptures, to, to uh, you know, attack them in any way, attack the, the inerrancy of Scripture or the validity of Scripture, one of the things you will probably encounter is they will say, what do you do with Matthew's genealogy and Luke's? They don't match. They're different. Uh, in fact, very different. And um, up until you hit David, from David back, they're the, they're the same, but David forward, Luke records a different genealogy than Matthew does. And some will use that as, a, as an attack against the Scripture that, you know, you see, uh, they can't even get the genealogies right, uh, and, and it, it's, it can be very puzzling. But while I don't claim to have all the answers uh, to some of these questions, one of the most convincing arguments that uh, I've come across is that Luke is recording the lineage of Jesus through the line of Mary. And it's subtle, but I think there's enough evidence here that, uh, that Luke is actually showing that Jesus not only has Davidic lineage through Joseph's line, like Matthew records, but he also has Davidic lineage through the line of Mary. Um, if you want to just put a finger at the start of Matthew for a second, I'll show you real quick. And this is important that you understand some of these, these things. And, and uh, Now, of course, Luke starts at Jesus and works his way back. And uh, Matthew, he starts um, Abraham and works his way forward. So, so that's a difference. But... If you jump down in, in Matthew's uh, gospel, right down to verse 16, we see verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Matthew records the father of Joseph as being Jacob, right? And then from that line, he's tracing his way back to Abraham. Now flip back to Luke, and um, Luke tells us that he says the first father, the, the first grandfather of Jesus is Healy. So clearly, there are different lineages happening. And this is, we know this is true. We all have two lineages. I could trace my family line through my surname, Hale, and go back through the line that way. Or I could take the line through my mother, and I could trace back through the Gregan side. And so we each have two lineages. And, I, and I, I'm convinced that Luke is tracing it back through the line of Mary. And one of the indications is that he puts in parentheses, probably in your, in your translation, it says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. And that is a subtle way of Luke saying Jesus wasn't biologically the son of Joseph, right? He was, he was born to a virgin. He was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph was his stepfather who had adopted him. But Luke is pointing out that it was supposed he was the son of Joseph, but actually being the son of God, he then goes to Mary's line and traces it back that way. But then, uh, one other interesting point, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, when we come to David, you see it again, because um, verse 31 of Luke 3, we find, as he comes to David, he says, the son of Nathan, the son of David. 
So he's tracing this line through a son of David whose name is Nathan. Uh, what is the name of the son that Matthew traces it through? Do you know? He was also a king of, of Israel, uh, the wisest king, um, Solomon. Matthew records Solomon as the son of David. So you can see what's happening. And, and, and again, um, you know, this, some, some people might have different takes on this, but it would seem to me that Luke is pointing out that there's a son of Nathan, and from his line, Mary is born. There's Solomon, and from his line, Joseph is born. And as the two come together, Christ has a dual lineage back to David. And uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see the, the intention and the, how, how purposeful these men are writing. You might say, well, why doesn't he say Mary? Um, why doesn't he say the son of Mary? Because that's not the traditional way that they would record genealogies. It must be recorded through the father. And so he, he doesn't use any women's name, actually, in this from this genealogy. He doesn't use any women. It's all men. And that is the formula that they would use. So here's the question now I want to give you this morning. How does a genealogy like this of Jesus Christ display the power and faithfulness of God? First of all, the first way that it, that it shows us the faithfulness of God is that it reminds us that God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises, and that is displayed through this genealogy. And we could just pick a few names out of here that God had given promises to. And going right back to the start, you have Adam and Eve. What was the promise that was given to Eve in the garden after they fell. It was that, that there would be the offspring coming from her who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. God declared that through the woman would one day come a seed who would crush the head of the serpent and who the serpent would bite his heel. And as Luke records this lineage back to Adam and Eve, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve. Listen to what, what uh, Paul says in Colossians 2, 8, in the fulfillment of this kind of promise. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, speaking of Christ, Luke writes this. He says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now listen to what he says about the work of Christ on the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus at the cross crushes the head of the serpent. He gives Satan a deathly blow 
even though after uh, the picture of a serpent biting the heel is that that would be uh, a deadly bite, Jesus, yes, dies, Paul says, to, to pay for our sin, to, to cleanse uh, humanity, to cleanse those who would confess Him as Lord. He reconciles God to man, but in doing that, He also crushes the, the authorities and uh, the rulers, even in spiritual places. Christ is the fulfillment to the promise given to Adam and Eve. Now, we could go on and on about how Christ uh, stands as the new Adam, and, you know, I love that biblical theme, and uh, Paul loves that theme, how Jesus comes as the fulfillment of, of, of the new Adam, a new humanity started in Christ. And before we move on to another promise, uh, it's worth mentioning that you see at the end, almost a shocking statement, the son of Adam, the son of God. Um, clearly, if you're doing a genealogy and you come to the end, if, you, if he just would have left it as the son of Adam and nothing, you would have thought, well, where did Adam come from? Who's he? So he, he points out that Adam, the son of God, he is created by God. God is the one who brings Adam into existence. But don't confuse that phrase with the usage to Christ, um, the Son of God can be used uh, quite widely, actually, uh, sometimes in relation to angels, sometimes in relation to us as His creation, and then it's also used in relation to Jesus, as Paul said, the, the God-man. So, um, it's a, it's a fascinating connection, and of course, Luke does it so that he maintains this formula of the genealogy, the Son of, the Son of, the Son of, all the way back. And how wonderful that he takes it right to Adam. Uh, I'm convinced that our generation desperately needs to understand this. We are the offspring of Adam. And Adam's sin is imputed to us. And we act according to that. And so our Savior must be also a son of Adam if he is going to restore us, to redeem us as humanity. And, and Paul does the same thing at Athens. He, he tells the Athenians that, that God has created all nations from one man. So don't buy into this notion that Adam's just a, you know, figurative guy and it was probably some form of evolution that God used. No, Adam was a historical man, the man from which we have all come and from which Jesus came. So that's just one promise. You could look at, of course, the promise that's fulfilled to Abraham, and I know that you're familiar with this, so we won't spend a lot of time on it, but it, it, it must be mentioned that to Abraham, God promised offspring like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in heaven, and that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God gave Abraham this promise. He entered into this covenant with him, and in Christ, we see the ultimate fulfillment. Yes, you could say Isaac uh, was the immediate fulfillment of that promise, his son that was born to him in his old age, uh, despite their bodies that were wore out. But Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham, which is why, um, kids, I know you love the song Father Abraham, right? I, I love that song because, because it's teaching us this truth. That in Christ, we are brought into the lineage of Abraham. The, the promise is given. In Christ, these promises are fulfilled. And we can take great hope and uh, comfort in that. It should also teach us um, 
as a bit of an aside, when you think about these genealogies, you realize the amount of time that these people waited to see some of these realities. Because we are very impatient, aren't we? Everything is at our fingertips. Everything is instant. You know, we've got tunnels going all over town uh, because our internet's not fast enough and we want fiber optic internet, right? And I'm not against fiber optic internet, but it is a demonstration of how, how um, demanding we are. We want instant. We want it now. And yet these genealogies would force us to take a step back and say, God's timing is not my timing. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon my timeline. It is upon his timeline. And you realize that Abraham, um, here's a little insert from an article. It says, uh, in regards to Abraham's promise, it says, the scriptural record, however, gives us another way to think about time. How long did Abraham and Sarah wait for the arrival of their promised heir, Isaac? God first revealed to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations when he called him to leave his country and go to the land God would show him. Abraham was about 75 years old. God gives him this initial promise of blessing. Fifteen years later, when Abraham was 90, God renews his promise with Abraham and says, I will do this. I will fulfill my covenant. You will have an, an heir. And of course, Abraham is going crazy trying to figure out how they could maybe encourage this along, and his wife gives him his, her servant girl, Hagar, and, and that, that doesn't go well. And, and, and so then it's 10 years later, when Abraham is 100 years old, that they finally have their son. A total of 25 years, Abraham waits for the fulfillment of God's promise. And that is a reminder for us to be patient. We look around and we wonder, why doesn't the Lord come back? Where is He? Why, why is He letting this go on, this, this chaos and the sin and the brokenness? Where is He? And Peter would remind us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and He's patiently giving us opportunity to repent. So we see His faithfulness to fulfill His promises. And the same is said of Jacob, who is recorded here for us, that God, through Jacob being the the offspring of, uh, of Isaac, that he would bless him. And God fulfills that promise in Christ. You can think of the promise given to David, that David was told by God, and we see this uh, again and again in the Old Testament, that from his line one would always sit on the throne, that, that from the line of David uh, there would be a ruler. And in Christ we see this realized, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic promise the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so we should take courage, even from something like a genealogy that would seem boring, that God is faithful to fulfill His promises. And you could go through, as I said, many of these names. I was thinking for a bit it'd be amazing just to, some of the names we don't know, but the names you know just to go back and read their story uh, and, and be reminded of God's work in their life. So secondly, and the last two will be a bit shorter. So first of all, this should remind us of God's faithfulness because it reminds us that He fulfills His promises. Secondly, these genealogies remind us that God works through the ordinary and the broken. God works through the ordinary and the broken. And I, don't, I imagine that you have days like me where you just feel completely ordinary and weak and you wonder, 
why would God use me? Surely I am of no use to the kingdom of God. I mean, I, I don't even spell very well, you know, and, and, uh, and we have these weaknesses that we would look at and, and think that that disqualifies us, but you read through these genealogies and you realize that all of these men and women, as Matthew would even record, were ordinary. They were they had weaknesses. They, they were born with a sinful nature. They were dependent upon the grace of God. They had tremendous loss and struggle, tremendous disappointment. They had tremendous heartache and experienced war and famine. And, and they were people dependent upon the grace and power of God. Sometimes we can be guilty of thinking of men and women like Abraham and Jacob and Isaac or, or David as though they are superhuman, and they're kind of like our superheroes that everyone is so excited about today, and we put them on a pedestal as though they are something that we are not. But the reality is the only difference that is between uh, us and them, uh, it would be if we are outside of Christ, if we're outside of the grace of God. The common denominator of all of these people in this genealogy is that God was gracious to them. God showed mercy to them. God displayed his power through them. And that should give us hope that as broken and messed up as you may feel, if you will humbly come to the creator of the universe and offer yourself as an empty vessel, Paul says that that no mind has conceived, that we cannot even imagine the things that God has prepared for those who love Him, that, that there is a, a limitless uh, amount that uh, an almighty God can accomplish through a weak and empty vessel. And that should give us comfort and courage this morning to step out in faith. Matthew takes it to a, even a greater degree. And you could imagine him writing to a Hebrew audience and then he brings in names like, like Ruth. Who's Ruth? Well, she's a Moabite pagan, a Gentile, outside of the covenant people of God. And yet she is in the line of Christ. And Matthew brings her in. Or Rahab, who was Rahab? She was a professional prostitute. But she is in the line of Christ. And, and again and again, these writers show us that it is not dependent upon the ingenuity of man, upon our strength, to see the kingdom of God advance, it is dependent upon God who is all-powerful and who will use broken and empty vessels who will confess their sin and turn to Him. So that's the second reason that these genealogies should encourage us, to remind us of God's faithfulness, is that they show us God uses the ordinary, the weak. And then lastly, thirdly, is that these genealogies should remind us that God fulfills His purposes, His promises in His own time. In His own time. I don't know how exactly it, it was in the first century, but no doubt, as you read through the Gospels, nobody was expecting that to be the day in which these promises would be fulfilled. No one was expecting Mary to be the vessel of, of God's grace to bring in the Messiah. Nobody was expecting Joseph, a simple carpenter or, or, uh, or maybe a mason, to be the father of Jesus. No one, no one was expecting Nazareth to be the town from which Christ would come. And yet, 
in God's sovereign plan, he patiently, intentionally brings about his promises. And we already talked about Abraham waiting, 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 25 years. I'm, that, that's a better part of my life waiting for a promise, and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm impatient after a day or two of praying for something and not seeing any results. But these genealogies remind us that God is sovereign, that He is bringing about His purposes in His own time. We can sometimes be guilty of, of viewing history like a, a ship caught in a great storm, you know, and, and the storm is raging and God is there trying to steer the ship, but sometimes the storm grabs the sails and he loses his grip on the steering wheel and, and, and it's out of control for a while, but then God's able to grab the wheel back and steer the ship back on course. And sometimes we're guilty of thinking about history that way, are we not? Even the way we as Christians talk today about the, the political scene and the, the turmoil that's happening, we can sometimes talk as though God has lost control of the ship. But that is not the biblical picture of God. He is sovereign. Not only is he perfectly in control of the ship, but he is in control of every molecule of water that is holding up the ship, every gust of wind that blows into the air, into the sails. God is sovereignly controlling. He is control of the, the launching of that ship at creation, and he will be in control of that ship landing on that blessed shore when Christ will judge the living and the dead. We must hold this view of God. God, that he is in control. Otherwise, we will be given into fear. We'll be given into doubt. We'll be given into to going the way of the world so that we might live a little longer. God is in control, and these genealogies remind us that he is working through even the most ordinary circumstances, and he will bring his great purpose to completion. As the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? You ever heard that? Where is God? Where is God in this pain? Where is God in this, in this terrorist attack? Where is God in this, in this weather? Where is God in, in this flood? Where is he? That's often the, the question. And the psalmist tells us that when the nations say, where is their God? He says, in response, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Hold on to that understanding of our God, even when you can't make sense of your circumstances. You can't make sense of the trials. You can't make sense of the loss. You hold on to the understanding that God is the God of history and He is doing as He pleases. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. Justin Trudeau is only able to do what God has permitted him to do. Amen? That's all he is allowed to do. That is all Rachel Notley is allowed to do as God permits and God will steer this 
for his own glory. It might come at great sacrifice for his people. It might mean great loss for us, but it does not mean he has lost control. And the clearest picture that God is in control is the cross of Jesus Christ. You can imagine the, the, the disciples reading these genealogies, and you know the Pharisees would have studied these because this would have been their first line of attack when Christ would claim to be a Messiah. They would have poured over the genealogies like, okay, let's disqualify him right here, right now. If he's not of the line of David, he doesn't qualify, but they couldn't. You never see that come against Christ from the Pharisees because they knew the lineage matched. But the disciples, you can imagine standing there They've seen the lineage. They've seen the promises. They're convinced he is the Messiah. And then he is taken. He is beaten. He is crucified on a cross. And you would think at that moment, God has lost control. Satan has won. But that is the greatest picture of God's sovereign plan being carried out through even the evil intentions of man's heart. The cross of Jesus Christ, hold it before you. Delight in the truth that God is the God of the nations. And I plead with you this morning, if you are not in Christ, if you have not forsaken the line of Adam, of death, of sin, of self-indulgence, then turn from that and flee to Christ. Confess your sin. Believe upon him that he died to pay for your sin, that he rose on the third day. And you know what happens at that moment? You are lifted out of the lineage of death. You're lifted out of the lineage of Adam. And you are put into the lineage of Christ. This becomes your lineage of salvation. You become the offspring of Abraham, of David, of Boaz. You become the offspring of Jesus Christ as you are brought into his family line. That is good news, and nothing in this world can pull you out of that line if you are truly born again. So let us pray, and I invite you to respond. Uh, If you have not been baptized as a declaration of that transfer from the line of Adam to the line of Christ, then I encourage you, be baptized. Make a declaration to this this body that I, I identify with Christ. I'm in His family lineage through that with you. Um, Let's pray, and we will have a, a closing song. Lord God, you are in the heavens, and we are here on earth, Father, and so we know that sometimes the best thing we can do is let our words be few, and Lord, we we thank you for the records that you have preserved, even through the great wars of the centuries, Lord. Your word was preserved for our sake, and you have, have given it that we might have faith, that we might have hope, in uncertain times. Lord, would you cause our hearts to rejoice that Christ has come, that he has fulfilled all and now has invited all to come and be a part of his great lineage, his great inheritance. Father, would you work among us, help us to have a heart for the nations, help us to have courage to stand and to to not shrink back when the darkness presses in, but to hold up the light, Lord, to, to, to take the truth, and to storm the gates of hell in this community, Lord, that we would tear down lies and bondage through the gospel. Father, would you use us for your namesake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.